Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian Mesa. My name's Aaron Bennett. My name's Justin McCartney. We are thrilled. I'm sorry, I just cut you off. Yeah, you did. Do you want to say your name again? No, it was pretty rude. They know who I am at this point, though. <laughs> My apologies. Yes, they do. Justin, the famous Justin McCartney. Uh, we are super excited to have you back for uh, what will be another fantastic episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving break. We hope you enjoyed seeing friends, family, eating, eating lots of, of pie, a lot of good food. Aaron, how are your cookies? My cookies were great. <laughs> Thank yeah, you sure they were. for asking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we have a fantastic guest on the podcast. His name is Jose Diaz Blart. He is um, all over your television, I'm sure. He's re- sort of run the gamut uh, on on being an on-air television personality for almost two decades. Yeah, uh, not only on English-speaking channels, but he also anchors uh, Telemundo as well. Um, so he is all over for um, Spanish-speaking households. He, as well, was here with Geopolitics this semester as a visiting fellow. So hopefully you got the chance to come out to... Uh, one of the few of his uh, discussion groups, chatted with him during office hours, um, stuff like that. I know he brought some awesome guests and seems to really uh, enjoy himself when he was on campus. And I know all of our students who joined appreciate it as well. Yeah. So we uh, first want to remind you to follow us on all forms of social media, be it uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or shoot us an email, flyinthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and we would love to interact with you. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes or um I'm not familiar with this, but Justin, can you subscribe to podcasts with the primitive uh, Android? Yes, you can. And we're on like any podcast platform, (laughs) mostly because anyone who listened to a podcast on any like weird platform that no one else had heard of, I put us on there so that they could listen to us because we're just that dedicated to our listeners. Stitcher, is that is that one of them? Stitcher, I don't remember what they're called at this point, but yeah, I think that was one. You're right. Cool. Yeah, we'll find us anywhere. Subscribe uh, and make sure you could listen to us every week. Awesome. Um, So we are going to move into our first segment, which is our tweet of the week. Um, And that comes to us from, um, again, actually, uh, our guest this week, uh, Jose Diaz-Bellart on Twitter, uh, who is at J.D. Bellart. And this is a pair of tweets, actually, um, like I said, before he was on campus uh, as a visiting fellow. And he, quote, tweeted a couple of um, students who had come to his discussion groups um, and kind of gave him a little shout out, like, so proud of you. Thanks for coming. Um, you know, really just showing his appreciation to all the students that put work into making his discussion groups happen. Yeah. Uh, they were pretty great this semester from what I understood. So shout out Jose Diaz Blart. I'm glad it was meaningful. It was a meaningful <laughs> experience for him as well. So let's jump into my favorite segment of the week, which is, uh, grinding our gears. What grinds our gears? Um, and we have some fantastic, uh, a fantastic topic for you today, and it is very simply interviews. So, who has strong feelings uh, about interviews? What grinds your gears about interviews? So, I'll jump in and uh, I'll start with political interviews because uh, I mean that's like the one I watch the most. Um, I don't know. So, I guess my problem with political interviews is they're like one of two things, right? They're either a one-on-one interview that is supposed to like really get to the person, which really ends up with that person, you know, doing their talking points the entire time. Or it's like a political interview with like multiple people. And then it's just like a shouting match to see whose voice is louder. Mm. And I mean, like a lot of times I don't feel like we get anywhere with it. Like at the end of the day, I'm like probably going to like, you'll see like the headline of what crazy thing that person said. And then you'll read it and you'll be like, that was crazy. Um, And like, that was the end of the day. You know, I don't, I don't really ever feel like political interviews get to the person unless the person is done running for something. Um, and I don't know if that's a fault of the interviewer. I don't really think it is. Um, but I don't know. It's just frustrating to watch. 
Yeah, I think Christian makes a good point. Um, and mine is sort of similar. Um, but I just want to say there are some absolutely fantastic journalists out there who really know how to give um, not only hard-hitting interviews to a lot of um, politicians or political candidates, um, but get at what's really driving um, the news of the day and get to the issues, get to um, the questions that they know the people want answered, um, making sure that they get those answers. So quick shout out to them. Um, the thing that grinds my gears most about these interviews, though, um, is, again, how they're kind of used out of context. Um, so it's so easy. I mean, like you put a television camera with the pol a politician or candidate's face um, and you can see his or her words right there. Um, and that just like is a, a weapon for uh, opposition research, basically. So you can take a 13 second clip that says, you know, I really want to cut funding to like Medicaid or something like that and use that and run it as an ad, you know, six years down the road when the candidate was really saying, uh, like, you know, quoting someone like, I really want to cut Medicaid and Medicare, you know, in 50 years for X and Y reason. Um, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is interviews can get very specific and the candidates or politicians have a lot of time to talk about their ideas. Um, and oftentimes you'll see like on Twitter, just a 10 second, like hot take clip that someone knows is going to get a lot of likes or retweets or is, you know, going to make their followers feel a certain way about the candidate. Um, and it, it really takes things out of context sometimes. So that's what grinds my gears. Shifting gears to what grinds my gears is oh, having, God. thank you. Um, <laughs> As as a group that does interviews, um, the the five of us here are flying the wall like every week. Um, it grinds my gears just how long it takes to get one right. I think we've learned significantly um, in the the last ten months that we've been doing this, yeah. eight months, whatever. Um, you know, just how much effort it takes to 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 really nail an interview and, and to ask the right questions and to to get inside the right rooms and. Uh, we talked about our process. If you listen to our International Pod Day special podcast um, all about you know what it takes to make Fly on the Wall, you'll know that we do pre-interviews, we do extensive meetings on interview question formation, we have research beforehand, we have a focus group to, to give us ideas uh, and starting points. So um, it really, it, it, it's a lot more than just showing up and, and, and talking with a, a guest. It, it's really a thorough interview process and it, it grinds my gears just how much time it takes to, to get it right, but I'm glad we do. Uh, you know, someone who would be willing to talk to us about their process for doing interviews. Who's that, Christian? Jose diaz Oh <gasps> Wait, is he here? Oh my god, he's like right here. <laughs> he's literally right here. Let's just bring him in. Jose diaz Balart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What a pleasure it is to be with you. We are very excited about this episode. Me too. Uh, we have not had someone, I guess, like as visible as you on the podcast. I was going to say, very rarely do we look up and see a face that we recognize oh, from TV. Nice. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I thank you for uh, for letting me be a part of this with you. Of course. We're excited. And thank you for uh, your commitment to geopolitics being here. This is your third visit of the semester, this right? This is it. This is the third one, yes. And how are your discussions groups going? I have learned a lot. I've learned a lot, and I, I was just actually just telling some of the uh, students that I've had the uh, chance to be with over these uh, couple of weeks that um, rarely does one find uh, young people that are so committed, so sensitive, so focused, so uh, determined to make their future include public service. Mm. Uh, and it's really uh, energizing, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm filled with enthusiasm and with excitement about the future of, of you all who, um, you know, 
are, are aware of just how privileged we are to be able to go to a fine institution and, um, and yet um, are willing to include public service in whatever they decide to do in their careers, you know? Well, we appreciate the uh, the kind words, and we'll try to live up to uh, <laughs> to all that you've just espoused. So uh, first, let's start uh, from the very beginning. So we've never had a broadcast journalist mm-hmm. on the podcast. So tell us, what is it like day to day to to do that sort of job? It's, I mean, for me, it's it's a privilege. It's a privilege uh, that I've been able to have now for on television thirty two years, thirty wow. coming up on thirty three years, and then one or two years in journalism before I entered television. Uh, so I've done print, I've done radio and television. The majority of my life has been on television. Um, I started on television in October of 1984. And from then to now, I don't think I've ever been a day off. I mean, a, a period of my life without, <laughs> yeah. without working in television. Uh, and so those are a lot of experiences, a lot of... Um, I've been a witness to many things both good and bad peaks and valleys um, of human nature, of reality. Um, you know, I'm just thinking the month of, uh, of November 2017 is the second anniversary of the uh, attack in Paris. Uh, it's the Bataclan right. nightclub, 130 people killed in, the, in this nightclub and, and in cafes uh, in Paris to be there for that. Uh, uh, but... But really to be able to be a witness uh, to what at the time is just human nature or things that ends up being history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, being in the Soviet Union after the coup against Gorbachev. Uh, and then, you know, being in the Soviet Union when they said, when they announced they were going to dissolve, dissolve the Soviet Union. Who would have thought right. then that you were going to be able to witness the end of the Soviet Empire? Um, you know, the killing fields of Srebrenica and, uh, and the areas outside of it. Um, so many things that at the time are just things that are happening mm-hmm. that become important parts of history. And I think that's one of the real privileges of journalism is to be able to listen and witness, uh, not participate. There's a difference there. You don't participate. You're a witness to right. to to things that end up and could be very important in history of our um, you know humanity right so, so talk to us a little bit about uh, I guess how you get to witnessing that history you know what goes into you know I guess each appearance or each television show that you end up creating you know how do you guys get to that hour long uh, well just the mechanics of it I can give yeah. you my day I mean my day is, starts in the morning I read and prepare. Mm-hmm. So here's what I, I, if I can give you guys just a very quick kind of outline of what my week is. Please, Please do. do. Yeah. So on, on Monday through Friday, I am the anchor of Telemundo nightly news mm-hmm. in Spanish Noticias Telemundo. So it's the six thirty half hour national news broadcast for Spanish language viewers in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, seen in every city in the United States and in, many countries in Latin America. So that's what I do Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Then on Saturday, I fly to New York. I live in Miami and I, my show is out of Miami, my daily show. Then on Saturdays, I fly to New York City and I anchor NBC Nightly News, mm-hmm. which is same time, 
on Saturday to English language mm-hmm. right. viewers throughout the United States and the world. Right. And then Sunday, I host a half-hour public affairs politics show for Telemundo Network in Spanish. Kind of like Meet the Press, but in Spanish. Right. So that's what I do in a week. Right. It's which, a full week. That's a full week. <laughs> so I'm on seven I'm on seven days a week. Wow. And uh, that includes two cities. So they are each a full-time job. And I see each one of those responsibilities as being a full-time job. And I give each one of those responsibilities a full-time job's mind, heart, and soul. And uh, so I'm working for those three things throughout the week. Mm-hmm. So I learn and study and keep up to speed on issues throughout the day. Um, you could even consider them you know, Latino-centric issues mm-hmm. as well as mainstream right. English language issues as well as you know, political issues that don't have a language issue because yeah, I don't, you know, the political show is a political show that could be done in English, but it's just done in Spanish. So I'm consumed. My day is consumed with trying to learn anything and everything. Right. And at the same time, then keeping up with the, the staffs of the Monday through Friday show and how the group of journalists works tirelessly Noticias Telemundo to get that show on uh, on Monday through Friday. The extraordinary staff uh, of uh, of NBC Nightly News Weekends, uh, who works throughout the week to get that show done, and then the incredible staff of Enfoque, the Sunday show that works throughout the week to get that show mm. on the air. So the only real thing that they each have in common is their anchor, because mm-hmm. the staffs are different, right? And so it's a extraordinary privilege to be able to work with different teams working on different aspects of news uh, in different languages right learning reading continuing my studies on issues related to each one of those shows the ones that overlap and the ones that don't and that was going to be our next question actually is how does your broadcast or your your process leading up to that broadcast change as you switch between languages and you switch between audiences a great question that's a great question i think that there are some things that are universal right and you know the need for information uh, uh, balance and objective information uh, knows no differences because of language uh but then there are some secondary issues for example the latin american or the spanish-speaking viewer in the united states uh watches us to not only know what's going on around their city and their country, but also in the country of origin, maybe the country of birth or where their parents are from. And the problems that may be going on in Venezuela are much more important to show in Spanish than on a 20-minute, 22-minute English language show. Now, there have been moments when the story is the same. The lead story of nightly news can be Venezuela and the lead story on Friday's Noticias Telemundo can be Venezuela. Right. Because it's just that important. It's big, yeah. Yeah. But I'll give you an example. Uh, You know, 
elections in 1st of July of 2018 in Mexico are going to consume a much bigger role in Noticias Telemundo than they will on Nightly News. Nightly News will have, I'm sure, stories of the elections are coming, the elections were held, here's who won. But, you know, we cover the primaries yeah. and Spanish language television and the, and we you know who's who and who's presidenciable, who's, who's presidential possibilities, uh, all of those details that are much more relevant, even to a non-Mexican viewer in the United States, but it's part of their um, worldview, which doesn't necessarily mean the same for an English language viewer. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And that, that sounds like a fascinating yeah. uh, thing to go through every week, but also it must be difficult to, to wrap your head around both at the same time, right? You're, you're trying to learn and consume everything, yes, literally everything. Yes. It, you know, after a while it gets easier when you're doing it 33 years. But uh, I will tell you that, for example, I just got back from doing nightly news on Saturday and then my dear friend and admired friend, Kate Snow, who anchors NBC Nightly News Sundays, um, is off on assignment. So I did this just recently, NBC Nightly News Saturday and Sunday. And for two weeks before that, there had been uh, some football games that preempted Nightly News for two weeks. So I hadn't spoken in English in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a difference between speaking English at home mm-hmm. and speaking English on and writing air. English on the air. Yeah, And so, uh, you know, I noticed it. So I talked about how we did a story, uh, another extraordinary colleague that I'm so proud of, uh, Morgan Radford. Uh, who did a story in Barbuda about how the uh, Hurricane Irma, Irma had wiped out an island and essentially everybody had to move to another one. Um, and I said on the air, Hurricane Irma, because that's how I've been saying Hurricane Irma for the last three weeks. <laughs> right. And it's Irma in English, I, I, was, I was told. And I said, well, could Irma and Irma is the same to me, but right. we, right. just, we hear a difference. Yeah, We hear a difference. And so... You know, sometimes the two worlds do collide in my mind. Right. And look, as far as as long as I don't comenzar una frase, a sentence in English, and then terminarla en español, and finish it in Spanish, <laughs> y en el medio, in the between, pongo dos words in English and three words in español. That's something nadie debería, no one should do. Good for problem. <laughs> That's what I try not to do, right? You don't mix both languages at the same time. Yeah, that wouldn't be great. Have you ever done that on the air? I've had moments. <laughs> Irma. Just right? slip into, yeah. yeah. Irma. Ever more than just one word? You slip no. into it? No. I've had comments. I say comments in English in Telemundo, and I'll say comments in Spanish on Lightning News. Sure. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is brought to you by the overachiever John Quincy Adams, uh, who is the only person to serve as the president of the United States and then later serve in Congress uh, after losing re-election. He was elected to the House of Representatives. Have you been on a Capitol tour and seen where his seat was in Congress? No. Because it's very cool. So so fun fact, I'm going to keep this quick. It's secondary to your fun fact. Wow. 
Uh, <laughs> Two for the price of one. There's a plaque where his seat is in the old house chamber. And the way that the chamber is like architecturally set up, you can hear people whispering on the opposite end of the chamber because the echo like bounces off the ceiling and stuff. And apparently the story the tour guides tell is that he would sit there at his desk and would listen to like the opposite party kind of huddling on the other side of the room and then know everything they were talking about and what their game plan was. Uh, even more interesting is, is this a, a third our fun tertiary fact? fun fact. Wow. Uh, there is a couch that currently resides in the speaker's office on which John Quincy Adams died. It is the John Quincy Adams box sofa. He died uh, shortly after suffering a stroke on that couch, and uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan keeps it in his office. That went zero to 100 <laughs> real quick. You actually had the honor of moderating a presidential debate last year. Mm -hmm. um, so first, talk to us about what that was like and talk to us a little bit about, you know, the prep work that went into that. I mean, you have a seven day job, but also, you know, you had to prepare for this debate. So how did you do that and what were you doing? And what's funny is that that was the uh, it was actually a town hall mm -hmm. right. with uh, Ch Chuck Todd and I right. had a two hour town hall with uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. One hour Bernie, one under one hour Hillary. And. I don't remember. I think it may have been a Monday. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. And the Sunday before the town hall and the entire week before the town hall was the Pope's visit to Mexico. Mm -hmm. So I was following the Pope <laughs> from sunrise to sunset in different places in Mexico uh, in this first papal visit until Sunday when he had his mass in the border. And then I had to get out of the border <laughs> and drive out of Mexico into the United States to get a flight to Las Vegas, where the next day was going to be the two-hour town hall with Bernie wow. and mm -hmm. Hillary. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's I think, something of the seven-day-a-week yeah. job that I have that kind of is our unique um, barriers or, or, or kind of difficulties, but, you know, wouldn't trade them for the world. But then getting to, to this uh, throughout the whole week, I'm, I'm preparing and I have extraordinary staff that had gone to Vegas two weeks before with the group of Telemundo and NBC led by Chuck Todd. Mm -hmm. As you may know, he's also political director mm -hmm. of NBC. He's a brilliant, uh, brilliant guy. But for two weeks, the entire staffs have been working together. And I had been on a daily basis, um, two-way streets of information, questions, uh, discussions um, on what the questions were going to be, how we were going to handle them, how Chuck and I, who had never worked together mm -hmm. in this way, it was an in-the-round format, so there was no backstage. Right. And and it was live, and uh, so we had never worked in together live like that. We had never co-anchored something together. We had never done Spanish and English. It was bilingual, so all of that was two weeks plus of you know 
staff of Telemundo, staff of NBC, and then my staff within those, both organizations, constantly uh, feeding me the information. And then, right. but it's uh, it's a it's a real privilege mm -hmm. of a lifetime to be able to to do that. I, I I see my job as really one of the every day is a privilege, so, and it's not just debates. It's meeting the people in the streets that, uh, you know, I, I oftentimes say it's not about the moments I've met presidents or princes. It's the moments I've met people that in their own way are making a difference in their world in a powerful and profound way. And that could be uh, after the earthquake in Mexico, the 19th of September, 2017, seeing a lady with uh, a, a tray of five fruits, giving the only five fruits she had to total strangers who were helping to remove the debris from falling buildings. That lady's story had as much or more of an impact on me than meeting princes and presidents. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, meeting princes and presidents, uh, you did make some news when you had a, a big interview with then-candidate Trump on MSNBC in 2015. That was in Telemundo. Yeah. And MSNBC, yeah. Right, yeah, both, both. And uh, in these, this is shortly after he announced mm -hmm. that he was running for president, right? And, and you pressed him, I guess harder than anyone else had at a time, about a lot of the disparaging comments he had made against the Latino community during his mm -hmm. uh, announcement. So tell us a little bit about that interview. Uh, as a Latino journalist, what was it like to interview a candidate who had made such statements about, about that community? It's the same as it would be any other person who says that. Uh, and you want to get some understanding of what leads them to say that. Um, and it was, you're right, I think it was maybe a week or two after here, maybe a little bit more after right. he had announced. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was quite unexpected in the sense that we had asked for interviews with him. But remember, uh, Donald Trump in his first, I mean, really until the end, but the unexpected winner of everything, right. the unexpected winner of the primary and then of the primaries and then the presidency. In other words, no one really believed that he had a shot, and much less then. And so all I wanted to do was understand how anybody could think this way mm -hmm. and uh it was, I think, a, 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 it, at times tense interview. And yeah. then I had another encounter with him when I went to, um, I was in El Paso. It wasn't El Paso. It was in Texas. It was another border town, Laredo. He went to Laredo. And uh, I was there, and he called on me, and I asked him. I, did a, I think I, I was able to ask him about eight seconds of my question before he, he shut me down. Mm. Um and uh, didn't let me ask a question and shut me down. Um, so, you know, it, it just, that's part and parcel of being a journalist. Uh, right. So I guess when you're interviewing Trump, you know, a lot of struggles journalists have brought up is, you know, when to press him on these issues or, you know, maybe when to move on to a different question. Mm -hmm. How did you go into handling um, then candidate Trump during that interview? You know, when did you know when to press or when did you know when to move on to something else? When you, when you figure that he's either going to repeat his answer over and over again, or you got the answer. What, what it, and it's a tough call, because most politicians, and Trump is a newbie at it, but he's very good at you know, diverting 
uh, and, and not answering if he wishes, which is one of the great skills of politicians. Uh, you, you have to push until you get an answer. And if, there, if the answer is going to be no answer, mm -hmm. then you can still ask it 52 more times and it's still going to be a no answer. Yeah. So you have to kind of say, all right. And what I've done in the past, and I do this a lot when someone is the repetitive no answer, is, well, you're not going to answer the question. Right. I've asked you the question three times. I'm going to give you the opportunity one last time. What did you do when you saw the sky falling? <laughs> If he says, I was not there, the sky didn't fall, then you say, okay, I've asked you this three times. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. But you, it, it is not unfair to say, you won't answer my question. Right. Or let me ask it again because you didn't answer it. Yeah. But if it's going to be the same. And by the way, the, the, this isn't just Donald Trump. I mean, right. presidents in general right. have been very good. And I've interviewed everyone since Ronald Reagan. Uh Presidents are become very good. Politicians are good at it. At if they give you a 15-minute interview, if you can ask nine questions in 15 minutes, but they can answer two questions in 15 minutes, <laughs> that's what they're going to do. Right. So it it is a skill. It's almost like a dance when you're interviewing people because your time is limited. If it's an hour or it's 15 minutes or it's, Nine minutes. Sure. The more they talk and the more they say nothing and talk, <laughs> the less time you have to ask questions. So you do have to say to yourself, okay, he has not answered my question. Do I ask him another two times and instead of three minutes, I just blew nine? Or do I make it a clear point that he didn't answer it and then use... Mm -hmm. The time to get answers that are else, yeah, yeah, and it's tough. But in my experience, is I ask it once, I'll say to him, "Let me ask it again because you didn't answer my question," mm -hmm. and then say, "Let's move on because you don't answer my question." Because one could, if you, and again, it's all style and tactics. If you want to become the story, mm -hmm. you can make it about yourself, right, Mister President? I've asked you fifteen times. Let's do it again. You know, <laughs> then you're not getting the answer, but you're becoming much more right. the focus of the story. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of that to go around. So it's a two-sided dance, you right. know? You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Our Politico's as real people this week comes to us from former Florida governor and presidential candidate Jeb Bush. Um, and this is a fun one. So Jeb Bush evidently has a secret guacamole recipe that he has not given up until now. In an interview with NPR's Steve Inskeep, um, the bulk of which was about the 2016 campaign, um, stuff like that, serious issues, blah, blah, blah. Um, he said it was the first time ever he has shared this secret uh, and, quote, mighty fine guac um, recipe with the public. Um, though he added he didn't give enough specifics, it's still secret, you know, he's got that, like, secret sauce, whatever. Um, but we are going to give you the DL. So, Jab Bush's guacamole um, recipe, avocados, quote, make sure they're not too ripe, but they got to be ripe enough. Cilantro, onions, jalapeno, quote, rather than chili serrano, quote, uh, and garlic, but not too much. Uh, I would like to point out there's a note section that says no lemon and no tomatoes. 
and that is just blasphemy. That's a hot take. Yeah. If you are not putting tomatoes in your guac, you are doing something wrong. Well, I mean, it's it's Jeb Bush's famous guacamole, so I'm not gonna argue with him. What makes it famous? That he's Jeb Bush. He's Jeb Bush. But have other world leaders attested to the quality of this guacamole? I don't know. Probably. We have a little thing we call the lightning round. Uh, so we're going to ask you three really quick questions. Fabulous. Um, and we know you're about out of time, so we'll do this. By the way, I'm sorry. I, I talk so much on these answers. I realize <laughs> no. it's not... Uh... We like... What we always say is we love stories, and you've, you've given us plenty of those. I so. could give you stories forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we love. You're, well, you're a journalist. You're an expert at it. <laughs> uh, so first question for you uh, is, you know, who's your favorite person you've ever interviewed? Or, you mm. know, the best interview you've ever done? I can't answer that. I can answer that. I can answer that. I've had moments that I have felt, oh my gosh, I am so privileged to be here because I have witnessed sometimes the best and the worst in humanity at the same time, at the same place. And but what's I can, the moment that stands stands out the most? I mean, look, being in the Soviet Union at the end of the Soviet Union, uh, I remember when we were in uh, Paris covering the death of Princess Diana when we found out that the driver had been drunk mm-hmm. and we were the first to find out uh, when, you know, being at the funeral and seeing the popular uh, reaction to her death, uh, being in, you know, in Srebrenica when you saw the killing fields and, the, you know, thousands of people that were marched out of their homes and, and, and massacred there. Um, so many of moments that uh, I have been a, a witness to that are the ones that I think about are my, uh, I wouldn't say favorite, but they're the ones that stay with me and that actually have made me who I am as a journalist and as a human being. And I think of little boys that lost their parents in war or um, you know, moments. I, I lived in El Salvador in 1984, 1985, and 1986 during the worst, most intense parts, I would say, of the civil war there. And I covered Central America, but based in El Salvador. And um, through earth, earthquakes and, um, you know, war, I, I witnessed so many acts of evil, but so many acts of goodness. Mm-hmm. That those are the ones that I think about. Sure. All right. Now, last. That was not right. a lightning answer. Like, that was not lightning. We'll that was like a. <laughs> we'll keep you to the lightning on this yeah. one. Uh, and we only ask hard questions here at Fly on the Wall, so we want a truthful answer. Yes. We had Senator Armando Rios Piter on the pod a few weeks back, who's a candidate running for president in Mexico. You probably know way more about this than we do. What, realistically, are his chances of winning? Not good. Not great. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Mexico is a very unique place because the two main political parties that are really now, uh, for, for, for over 60 years, it was just one. It was BRI and the PAN wins in the year 2000 with Vicente Fox. And then since then, there has been a change of the political realities with the other political parties, including one by Lopez Obrador, La Morena, which is, many people think he won the last time. Uh, But I I think that it's very tough to break through uh, if you're not PAN or PRI. And I think that we'll have to see now what happens 
with Lopez Obrador and his party on the 1st of July of 2018, their elections in Mexico. I don't know. I know that Mexico is not a place that is... Not friendly for independence. Not friendly for freedom of the press. Not mm. friendly for, uh, you know, it's... it. Unfortunately, a lot of its institutions have been corrupted. Mm -hmm. And you fight corruption. Sometimes you win. Many times you lose. Right. That was his, his larger point was uh, with all the money that's being talked, thrown around and, and there's not really a whole lot of fairness in the party structure and, and in government. That, you know, that that was his stand. That was his point in running as an independent. But interesting to hear that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that's I, just not really going to resonate there. I mean, again, it, it, there's a lot of different reasons. So in Mexico, the political parties help uh, control the votes by, uh, you know, in the actual voting booth, you know, your help political parties help you by giving you T-shirts and bringing you to vote. And if you vote my way, you'll get this. And so and then it's very tough to be an independent mm -hmm. and to succeed. I think Lopez Obrador and his political party um, has the opportunity and it would be a vote of rejection right. that would maybe. Um, let him win. I don't know. Interesting. Well, Senator uh, <laughs> Senator Peter, if you're listening, uh, good sorry. luck. Good luck. Buena suerte y adelante. The thing is to participate in the democracy, even if the cards are against you. Right. It's important to participate and insist on uh, uh, democratic principles being uh, instituted in Mexico and everywhere else. Well, kind words for the Jaguar there. And a, a proud Georgetown alum, so we got to reform. Uh, Jose Diaz-Balart, thank you so much for thank you gracing guys. us with your time. Appreciate your time. And this is thank fascinating. So Thanks so much, and we uh, we thank you for being here at Georgetown. Last, thank uh, you. Last it's, real, it's, been a, it's been a real learning experience for me, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Uh, I really enjoyed that interview with Jose Diaz Bular. Um, you can tell why a lot of students love these discussions this semester. Um, just like a really thoughtful and articulate guy who's um, in, you know, interviewed some of the most powerful people in the world and uh, clearly takes his job and his craft incredibly seriously. Absolutely. And I know it's a bit of a stretch to say that we're budding journalists, um, but we do uh, do these interviews like we were saying before. And uh, I certainly, at least, was taking plenty of notes uh, during our interview with Jose. If you like the podcast, you don't want to miss a single one. So make sure you subscribe. Find us on iTunes, find us on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, take a listen. We only got a few more episodes this season. Um, we hope you guys will enjoy them, though. We got some big ones coming up. Uh, we hope you have a great week. Stay strong through the end of the semester and we will see you next Sunday. And safe travels to be back from wherever your Thanksgiving took you. Okay, so I know Aaron has strong feelings about this, which is why I'm bringing it up. Oh, it's a bad idea. Yes, it's a great idea. <laughs> I don't know I where he's going with this. Um, <laughs> Plenty of things. So it is officially after Thanksgiving. Nope. Oh, here we which go. Which means... It's no. Which means that I can start playing the Christmas no. music all the time, every day. The answer's no. However, I would make the argument... The answer's no. ...that the second that you hit the middle of Thanksgiving... The or the middle no. of November, you are... And it gets cold... You are allowed to start playing. The answer is no. Christmas Why? Music. No, okay, no. okay. So the middle of November thing is like up for debate. I understand that. Thanksgiving, it, Santa Claus has come out in the parade, and we are allowed to start playing holiday music. Answer me this. How many days of Christmas are there? 25 days of Christmas. Yeah, and when does that begin? December 1st. So, therefore, 
when may you begin playing okay. Christmas music? I'm sorry I want to share Christmas joy outside of December 1st, Aaron. That's just incorrect. I It is music to celebrate a specific holiday. No. Now, normally, I would grant you one day. It's a holiday to, season. I would normally grant you one day. Oh, I'm to sorry. Play your I needed music you to grant day, me a there day. Is, there is only one day of Christmas. There's only 24 hour period of Christmas. That's not actually true. Okay. Christmas is 12 days. Fine. See, no, normally I grant you that 12 I days, disagree. but I'm granting you the extension of 25 days because ABC recognizes this as the 25 days it's of Christmas. Freeform now. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it's an ABC okay. family. Ah, then <laughs> Freeform recognized the 25 days of Christmas and they play a different Christmas movie for 25 days. And I get that. I will respect the sanctity of December 1st being Christmas, but you cannot claim it is the holiday season because if you claim it's the holiday season, I want to hear some, I want to hear some Hanukkah music. I want to hear like traditional like Kwanzaa music. Like, all the sort of ho- uh, New Year's music, any sort of holiday that comes across in holiday season, which we define ambiguously as post-Thanksgiving, I want to hear all forms of music being celebrated. But when I'm forced to listen all day to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, which you should there be are thankful. more Christmas songs than just that. There's Michael not, Buble put out a great it. Christmas oh, album. Oh, wait. Okay, I love Michael Buble's Christmas music. Then you may not claim that you are playing Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Okay. You have to follow all of the rules. Number one, you do not make the rules. You do not grant you anyone grant time. time. I will play it when I am good and ready. Notice the theme here. It has been Christian and I against Aaron for two weeks in a row. <laughs> and second off, second off, I would like to point I out... I firmly believe I'm on the right side of history. Here. Okay, congratulations. We'll see you in the history books. Um, however, I would like to point out that the holidays is not just a time period it is a feeling in your heart. And therefore, right. when you are in the holiday spirit, you should be allowed to play holiday music. Fine. Even dreidel, 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 dude. Great. Well, let's Fine. play that in let's July. Go. I love dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. play it in July? That is not. Because it is a feeling. It is not a specific not time true. period. That is just not true. I'm sorry. You don't have the holiday spirit in your heart. 